um, in chapter 11. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where, the, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Thank you guys for being here. Um, as a heads up, today is a little bit of a different day for us as a church family. I'm sure many of you already know, but some of you may have not heard the news. But uh, our friend, uh, Dan Pobledi, passed away on Wednesday. Um, as I was thinking about this, uh, I kind of realized that it's unfortunate that many of you, some of you haven't gotten a chance to meet Dan. Uh, Dan was, Dan and Nida Pobledi are founding members of King's Cross Church. They're also, this is the dad of, of Chris and uh, Cami and uh, the grandfather of the Donahue kids and the and the Pobletti kids. Um, and it's not your fault that many of you maybe not had a chance to meet him. Uh, coming out of COVID, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer and um, just wasn't able to be around. But you should know that every Sunday, uh, if you preached, if you did liturgy, if you sang, you get a text from NIDA. Uh, saying, hey, we watched online. We're praying for you. Thank you for blessing us. And so Dan has been a faithful servant. Um, and I would go as far as say that Dan and Nida have significantly affected the DNA, the culture of King's Cross. Because the thing about culture is that it's not necessarily the leaders that establish the culture, it's the people. Uh, and they're like, if you've been blessed by the hospitality 
the love and the generosity that is our church family. Uh, Dan and Nida had a lot to do with that. Um, since I was like in my early 20s, they've been just the most welcoming human beings I've ever met. Like for Chris and I, anytime our friends wanted to have a birthday party, anytime we wanted to hang out on a Friday, it was like at their house. They would provide the food and the drinks and, uh, and the karaoke machines. And that's where we did our thing. And then that same kind of hospita- hospitality spilled into our church. I mean, in the early, early days of our church, we met there for prayer before we were even a church. During COVID, we met there as a church. Many of you guys have had birthday parties or baby showers at their home. Dan specifically, um, just like a quiet servant. Uh, I can remember one time specifically, it was like the dead of summer. And it was at the uh, ch- at the school when we were meeting over there. Uh, it's like 107 degrees out. Church is over and like all the families like abandon the church grounds. Like we head for air conditioned lunch, you know, and uh, I'm still there and I walk out and there's Dan Pobletti like lugging heavy equipment into our truck, just sweating bullets, but doing it to serve us, to, to serve our community. You guys have probably seen him here, like disappear all of a sudden in the middle of summer and then come back with a bunch of water so that our kids could have something to drink. That was Dan just like quietly serving us all the time. Um, Dan, uh, two things real quick, personal stories about Dan before we get into the text. Uh, Me personally, lots of conversations with Dan, always around either sports or history. Dan never had like a, for me, I never had a, like an emotional, an emotional conversation with Dan. That's just not our relationship. Um, And this one time, like, it seemed like we were going there. So it was like my, my sister passed away. And uh, of course, Dan and Nida reach out and they're like, hey, if you want to host something in our backyard, you, it's yours. And so like after the memorial service, you know, my family was going over there for a dinner. I show up a little bit early to help set up and there's Dan in the backyard sweating, like moving ice and getting food ready. And I see him and he walks right up to me and like he's standing before me and he's got his hands on his hips, you know, and I'm like, dude, is he about to get like deep with me? You know, I've never done this with Dan before. And he goes, so how are you feeling about the Lakers? <laughs> it was so on brand for Dan. I loved it. Uh, one more fun story. Dan is a legend at 24 hour fitness, uh, uh, Foothill Ranch. And I'm going to tell you why. One day I'm sitting there, uh, we're, we, there's like nine guys on the basketball court. We're waiting for one more dude to show up and so that we can have like 10 people to play basketball, right? And like super random, I see Dan Pobletti walking by, which is like seeing a fish flopping in the middle of the desert. Like was not expecting to see Dan at the desert or at the, uh, at the gym, you know what I mean? Maybe he went all the time. I just wasn't expecting it. And so I kind of joking, like, I'm like, Dan, what's up, dude? He's like, oh, hey, what's going on? I'm like, oh, yeah, we're waiting for a 10th. You want to play? Kind of like a joke. And he's like, yeah, you know, I probably still got it. Let's do this. And what you need to know about Dan is he was like the most confident human being I'd ever meet, even when he had no right to be confident. So Dan gets on the court and he's like, let me warm up a minute. He starts bricking these shots, like shooting with two left hands. And so he gets done. He's like, all right, yep, we're ready. You know, we're good to go. And so we start playing and it's, it's not going well. 
It's like the end of the game. It's one of those situations where it's like next point wins and Dan's on my team, if I remember it correctly, and Dan gets the ball at the three-point line and he looks at the rim and me in slow motion, I'm like, don't do it. Dan like hucks this ball up there and it clanks off the backboard, clanks onto the rim, goes up into the air and then goes in. And we are all like, we look at him like, what the, and Dan, not exaggerating, he goes, and then he walks off the court, passes me and goes, still got it. <laughs> Never seen him there at that place again. Dude, the most confident person I've ever met. Dan, um, man, Dan is still serving you guys today. If you've been blessed by the culture of King's Cross, his servanthood, his hospitality, that, and that's the thing too about God, you know, like, sure, he uses the preacher, he uses the evangelist, he uses the New York Times bestseller, but more than anything, he uses the quiet, everyday, like faithful member of a local church. And that was Dan to King's Cross. If you've been blessed by the hospitality, the generosity, and the love of this church, you have been blessed by Dan Pabletti. I've been, uh, been thinking a lot about the, the verses that we just read. In the midst of, of Dan passing away, um, you know, if you think about like, the attributes of God, the all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you really wrap your head around who God says he is, then the reality that Jesus weeps, that God would cry, it's confusing. It's a little bit disturbing maybe even. Like what is he doing? The, the maker of all of us is mourning. And he knows, as we just read, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet we find him crying. Why? Why would he do that? And I think the answer helps in moments like this. It brings us comfort as we mourn the loss of a friend of a faithful servant, um, as we see his grandkids mourning, which is always like a, man, when your kids hurt, it's like a double hurt, you know? You mourn their loss while you mourn your own. And so that's why I wanted to go over this. Uh, and let's pray. Let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, um, you have something to say. I sense even now that you're leaning in as the God of comfort. And so as we unpack this text, Lord, um, man, we don't get answers necessarily, um, but we get you, Lord. And so through your Holy Spirit, comfort us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So as a recap, Mary and Martha uh, and Lazarus are uh, brothers and sisters, and Lazarus is essentially on his deathbed. And so Martha and Mary send out this letter to Jesus, and notice that the Jesus, uh, that the letter says something very interesting. It says that, Lord, the one you love is sick. You see, Mary and Martha know that Jesus is who he said he he is. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he has the power to save their brother. But notice that they don't send him a letter and say, Lord, my brother is sick. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. And John further goes on to like focus on the reality that this is someone that Jesus loved, that he loved these siblings deeply. It says this, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus, So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. I want you guys to notice that John spends a specific amount of time talking about the affection that God has for these siblings. Not only do they reference his love for Lazarus in his letter, but also John mentions these people Jesus loved. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't like rush over to help right away. And think about like the time. I think it's important to recognize the time. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was gone. He had died. It's been four days. So when he gets there, there is four days of mourning for the family. Like that is a long amount of time. And it's interesting, before we, talk about, before we talk about Jesus weeping with Mary, we have to address Jesus' interaction with Martha. And you should know that so much of uh, what I'm talking about here, I have um, gleaned from uh, Mokato Fuchimori in his book, Art and Faith. He uh, does an amazing job on John chapter 11. And in that book, he focuses on Martha for a second. He says, we, we need to pay attention to the reality that Martha is like the CEO of the family. She's pragmatic. She's a go-getter. She's like, let's get the facts straight. Give me the information, and that's good enough for me. And so the way that Jesus interacts with Martha versus Mary is very different. Mary takes a minute. She's like the contemplative artist. She's not ready for a conversation with Jesus, but Martha goes out right away. She wastes no time. She wants to have a conversation. She needs the facts. And here's what it says, verse 11. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into this world. I want you guys to notice her statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she follows up with what she knows to be true about God. She says, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. She is pragmatic. She's like, my brother is dead. And this hurts, but I know you are God. And I find hope in that. And God, Jesus, meets her pragmatism. He gives her the facts. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And her response is incredible. Again, she says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have to realize that Martha's declaration of who Jesus is, is besides John the Baptist, she really is the first one to fully realize who he was. Like John the Baptist would later go on and stumble in his faith. Before Peter understood who God was, he would deny him three times. Before Paul understood who God was, the resurrected Jesus would have to reveal himself on a desert road to Paul. In the meantime, he would persecute the church. But Martha, being a theologian, realizes who he is before anyone else. He's, she's like, you are the Messiah. And for Martha... The hope that she finds in what God is doing is not theoretical. This isn't ideological information. This isn't wishing for the best for her. This isn't making lemonade out of lemons. For Martha, her hope comes in the promises of what God says he is going to do. And what he is going to do is just as much of a reality to Martha in the present day than anything else is. You know, when Joe and I sit around and talk about Lord of the Rings, like, we're not talking about something that's actually real. No offense, Joe. We're talking about something that we want to be true. But this future promise to Martha is reality. You know what it is? She knows the end of the story. She knows that it doesn't end with sadness, that it doesn't end in death. And the fact that she knows the end of the story is what brings her hope in the midst of her tragedy. I can remember years ago, um, one of my favorite movies is The Iron Giant, like, because it's all time one of the best movies out there for kids. Uh, and you will, as new parents, like young parents, you're going to spend a lot of your life watching terrible children's movies. Uh, Iron Giant is not one of them. Um, and so I like, I talked it up a ton to my family. I'm like, dude, this is the best movie. I love it so much. We've got to watch it. And I talked it up for like three weeks. And finally, we sit down to watch The Iron Giant. And for those of you who have not seen it, shame on you. Beyond that, 
what you need to know is that the Iron Giant is like this big, lovable creature. Um, and he meets this boy that's alone, that's fatherless. And they build this beautiful bond, this wonderful friendship. And uh, at the end of the movie, the Iron Giant dies. Like, the, the rest of the people are afraid that he's this dangerous weapon. And so they shoot a missile at him, and it ends up heading towards the city. And they're basically going to obliterate themselves. And the Iron Giant steps in and saves the day. He dies. And uh, the movie seems to end in this way. Like, this, is, this isn't the climax of the movie. This is the end of the movie. And so, like, the Iron Giant dies, and my kids look at me, and they're like, this movie sucks. Like, this is sad. Why did you make us watch this terrible movie? To this day, they don't want to watch it again with me. And I'm sitting there, like, with a smirk on my face. Like, just wait. Just wait. Because almost, like, the movie is over. It's like the credits are about to roll. The little boy is going to bed. And then what you see is this little screw start to wiggle. And it starts to roll in the snow, and then the camera pans out, and you see all these other parts of the Iron Giant starting to move. And at the very last moment, the last scene in the movie, is the Iron Giant's eyes open up, and he smiles. You see, in the midst of it, I knew the end of the story. I knew that it was beautiful. I knew that it did not end in death, and so it was enjoyable for me to watch. Martha knows the end of the story. She's devastated at the loss of Lazarus. But like J.R.R. Tolkien says, everything sad will become untrue. Martha believed that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that everything sad will become untrue? That is what brought her hope, that she knew that death was not the end. Um, there's this Latin term, uh, it's, a, it's a theological idea called Felix culpa, and the idea that that term is translated to unfortunate fall. And the idea here that theologians sort of ruminated over is that the reality that heaven in Revelation you know, in the beginning, it goes from heaven in a garden to heaven in a city. And they observe that heaven in the city is actually better than it was when it was in the garden. In other words, uh, not that the fall is good. That part is unfortunate. But in the midst of the fall, God does something better. He does something beautiful because of the fall. And uh, Mako references uh, Kintsugi art to try to help explain this. And for those of you who don't know, Kintsugi art, you've probably seen this before, it's where uh, a, a broken bowl in Japan is then remade with like fine gold. And the, and the history of Kintsugi art is really important to understand the beauty of it. You see, at one point there was this king who loved tea. This is the, the mythology of Kintsugi art. At one point there was a king, he loved tea, and one day somebody breaks his favorite teapot, and he's about to like kill the guy, and someone steps in and goes, let me repair it. And so they take pulverized gold and they remake the teapot. And what ends up happening is the king, now that he sees it's been remade, it becomes his favorite teapot. 
like a piece of art that he doesn't even want to use. And so that the artist saves the guy's lives. And so in Japanese culture, what would happen is you would get this, uh, you know, a bowl would break. It would be a regular bowl that no one really paid any attention to. But what a family would do is they would hold, down, hold that broken bowl and they would pass the broken bowl down generation after generation until one day a Kintsugi artist would look at it and decide that they wanted to remake it into something beautiful. And what's important to recognize is that in Kintsugi art, they don't like recreate the bowl to hide the brokenness. Instead, they use the gold to show off the brokenness. It's in the midst of the brokenness that it becomes something beautiful. Uh, Mako says it like this, Kintsugi does not just fix or repair a broken vessel. Rather, the technique makes the broken pottery even more beautiful than the original, as the Kintsugi masher would take the broken work and create a restored piece that makes a broken part even more visually sophisticated. He then points out to the reality that God is doing something beautiful, not in spite of our brokenness, not in spite of our pain and suffering, but through it. And he points out, this is incredible to me, he looks at, so like we, we have an example of what it looks like when we are resurrected, right? We are promised these new bodies that are supposed to be glorified without sickness, without death. Uh, and Jesus, we, in, in Jesus' story of the resurrection, he reveals himself in a glorified body. So we have a glimpse of what our bodies are gonna look like in heaven, in Jesus. And notice that in the midst of that, what does Thomas observe that is a part of Jesus' broken body, his wounds. Think about that. That in the midst of Jesus' body being glorified, you can see the wounds in which the nails were driven through his hands. You see, God is doing something not despite our pain, but through our pain, through his wounds, we are healed. Mako says it like this, at the heart of our journey towards the new is the resurrection vision of God. Every art recognizes the work must be broken to be made new again. Minerals must be pulverized. Characters of a play must be tested beyond bearing. To be or not to be, that is the question. We cry with Hamlet in desperation. A dancer's body will be broken over and over again for that one miraculous leap. In that journey of brokenness, we experience something that transcends the brokenness. Even fixing what is broken is an opportunity to transcend the use of the object. Kintsugi bowls are treasured as objects that surpass their original usefulness, useful purpose, and move into a realm of beauty brought on by the Kintsugi master. Thus, our brokenness and light of the wounds of Christ still visible after the resurrection can also mean that through making, by honoring the brokenness, the broken shapes can somehow be a necessary component of the new world. This is the most outrageous promise of the Bible. Notice that 
through Kintsugi art, the brokenness is not hidden. It is highlighted. One of the things that Mako talks about is that in our pain, in our suffering, that so often in this world, like we just want to move past it as quickly as possible. We want to get ourselves busy. We want to get through it quickly. But he challenges us that the, the Kintsugi artist would behold the fragments. They would sit with the pain. And it wasn't until after a long while at looking at the brokenness that then they would see the beauty and they were ready to reshape the bowl. It's often in mourning that we just want to get to the new normal. But what if God wants something beautiful for us? Beautiful for us. Mako's challenge is to not run from pain and suffering, to not run past it, to not ignore it, but to behold it. To behold the pain until it is, till you see the beauty of what God is doing. Now, here's the thing. Martha, again, pragmatic, like, give me the facts. And to her, reflecting on what God is doing in the promises of God is a source of comfort. But to any of us who's been walking with Jesus long enough, who has experienced pain and suffering, we know something. We know that knowing those facts doesn't make it any less painful. It doesn't make the hurt go away. And that's where Jesus' response to Mary is important for us. Look at verse 32 again. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Again, Mary is the, the contemplative artist. She is emotionally charged. And notice that Mary's first response with her words are actually exactly the same as Martha. Both of them say word for word, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But Martha offers theological facts to follow up that. And Mary just falls at Jesus's feet and begins to cry. And what does Jesus do? Man, what could he have done? Like, he knows he's about to resurrect Lazarus. He could have been like, dude, ye have such little faith. Come here, let me show you what I'm doing. He could have picked her up right away, taken her over there, and raised Lazarus from the dead. He could have been harsh towards her. But God is not harsh to the brokenhearted. What does Jesus do? He doesn't fix the problem right away. He weeps. He weeps with Mary. He weeps with the brokenhearted. No words, just tears. As Richard Hayes put it, at Bethany, the incarnate word of God stood wordless. Why? Why does Jesus do this? You could argue it's a waste of time, that it's a waste of tears. He knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. 
There is no rational purpose. There's no pragmatism to gain from Jesus stopping and crying with Mary. Here's why. Jesus knew what Martha needed. She needed information. But Mary needed something else. Mary knew what those tears were. You know what Mary needed? Mary needed a friend. She needed a friend in Jesus. A friend who weeps with those who weeps. A friend who knows the pain. That is what Mary needed. And that is what Jesus gave her. As the song goes, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Yeah, he is the sovereign God. Yeah, he's the Lord of Lords. Yeah, he's the one that knows the beginning and the end. Yeah, he's the one who controls all things, knows all things. He, though, is not the God who stands over and above suffering. He is the God who knows suffering. He is the God who cries with you. He weeps with Mary. Mako points out that Jesus' tears are still with us today. Back then, um, it was a practice that you would catch people's tears in jars and you'd bottle them up and you'd hold them. They were precious, but no one caught the tears of the creator of the universe. Why? You know, here's why I think. Because the next time we're there and we're crying out to God in pain, we're like, why, Lord? And we can't hear him. Maybe it's because he's not speaking. Maybe it's because he is weeping with you, just like he weeped with Mary. And of course, this is not the last time that Jesus cries. He cries in the shadow of the cross. He cries knowing that he is about to experience the brokenness, that he is about to be destroyed. Why? So that we would have hope. So that we would have hope that God is doing something, that God is with us, that God is for us. And so the final tear that's shed ultimately are the tears of Jesus so that one day our tears would be wiped away. He is weeping with you. I know that's not an answer, but it's a promise. He is weeping with you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.